This is a WTOP original podcast. Welcome to another episode of The Vine Guy. I'm your host, Scott Greenberg. And today, I have the dynamic duo of father-daughter Pierre Sion and Eline Sion, who have, for the last few years, been working together on a wonderful project, both uh, here and abroad. Now, Pierre Sion has spent the last five decades perfecting his micro-crew philosophy. I want to hear a little bit more about that in a moment, to create world-class wines. His passion lies in crafting wines from diverse terroirs, using the same approach to capture the unique expressions of Sonoma County, Bordeaux, and Tuscany in each vintage. He's joined by his daughter, Elaine Sion, who spent her childhood in both France and California, surrounded by family and friends for whom winemaking was as much a passion as it was a profession. Pierre, Elaine, welcome to the Vine Guy podcast. It is such a pleasure to have you with me today. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you very much. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, because it's nice to actually see the the duo behind the wines I adore so much. And I have to say, I've tried your wines from Bordeaux. I have tried your wines from Tuscany, and I have tried your wines from Sonoma County. They are all spectacular. I mean, they are on another level. I don't mean I don't mean to as we say in America, blow sunshine, but but they really are spectacular. You are both such talented winemakers. I I guess I just have to ask, Pierre, what started your journey in wine? I was raised in a family, a Gascon family, Seyam, my father's side, and uh, my mother was from, uh, her father from Côte de Castillon, next to Saint-Emilion, and my grandmother from Montbaziac, Bergerac, wine country too, but uh, I was raised in uh, our uh, personal estate called Bellevue, Young for many generations, we are this estate, and I was raised in a vineyards atmosphere, because we are vineyard in Gascony, where is a place of Armagnac and Côte de Gascogne, and as well, we had, because the topography, complex topography of Gascony, we have a general farming with grain, cows, um, sheep, etc. This was my, 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 my education I received from my grandparents, my parents, and the history of my family, because one of my ancestors created the Enology map of Armagnac. He was a very talented viticulturist at the time, and winemaker in 1975-80. He did import the rootstock from America with a team to organize the grafting against the phylloxera. These are, are my, my roots, and of course, I was raised in the atmosphere of the vineyard, terroir, uh, winemaking, and also uh, uh, food and wine together. But while you learned to grow Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot and Cabernet Franc and, and several other white varieties, as I understand it, you really later on in your career focused very intently on Cabernet Franc. What led you to fall in love with that particular variety? Uh, the main reason is clear. Uh, in, in my vineyards in, in Gascony, in, uh, in uh, 1965, I start to work with my, my parents, 65, 66, 67. And my grandfather, uh, mother's side, was 
from close to Saint Emilion, when he saw the terroir, when my mother married my dad, uh, when he saw the terroir of what we have in Gascony, Belvise, on the top of the hill with a lot of clean gravel like uh, Chateau Trotanois in, in Pomerol, exceptional terroir, he said to my, to my dad, you should, you should plant some uh, Merlot and Cap Franc. And the reason why I was, uh, I fell in love quickly with the Cap Franc because it was exactly the, the most difficult grape to grow, very, a lot of character, because the Cap Franc, you don't have average wine. You have exceptional wine or horrible wine. And what is interesting with the Cap Franc, you can make a wine 100% with the Cap Franc, but you have to be exceptional. Otherwise, you need to make a blend. Right? But they don't do that in Saumur Champigny, in Chinon, in Bourgueil, Loire Valley. And this is a paradox of the Cafran, because this, this Cafran grows on 300 kilometers uh, north of Bordeaux, on the cool region of Loire Valley, and it does arrive very nicely on, on a good year, of course. And also, is doing extremely well in Saint-Emilion, what we do with Chateau Lassec, but it's extremely well. Now, uh, I put a lot of Cafran in Tuscany with our brand Arcanum. Uh, I'm very pleased to have uh, discovered the Cafran on a very complex topography of Sonoma with a cool temperature for about uh, 16 to 17 hours a day with the influence of the Pacific Ocean. And the Cafran does pretty well. But you need to farm the Cafran with a lot of precision. Don't demand too much in terms of yield, especially not much. And then have a great farming and respect the message of the soil. Is very sensible of the lack of consideration of the vine. Cafran, as you, I repeat again, is exceptional, very good and exceptional, or very mediocre. I've never heard that about Cap Franc. That's very interesting. I didn't know that it kind of was at either end of the pendulum there. It's either going to be exceptional or it's not going to be no, very good. After it's um, uh, average, uh, rustic, mediocre, you can get color and you can get alcohol, but Alcohol and color, it's easy to make, uh, but the, the finesse and elegance is another step. So I want to circle back around to something I said earlier in my introduction, that you had become obsessed with micro-crew philosophy. Can you just take a moment and tell me, what is micro-crew philosophy? Uh, my definition of the micro-crew philosophy come from a long time ago. Uh, when I was, uh, I repeat again, when I was in Gascony, because the topography is so complex, what we call Coteau de Gascogne, you have a, a lot of different types of soil. And each type of, of soil provides, uh, even if it's the same varietal with the same clone, same rootstock, but uh, if each different type of soil, what I call microcru, provide a, a different energy on the grape and of course different energy if you ferment your, this grape in a separate tank. And this is exactly, for me, the message of the soul of the microcru uh, are above the clone expression, because the clone expression disappeared after two, three, four, five years aging. But the what emerging thing of the microcru philosophy is the underground appreciation of the spice you have and you capture with uh, uh, deep roots in uh, in uh, in a different soil to have a different energy. And the philosophy of Verité is not a copy of Bordeaux because Verité can work with four appellations here, 
uh, Alexander Valley with Alexander Montana State, Knight Valley, Chalkill, and, and Bennett Valley on, on Taylor Peak. This week, we're going to do that in Bordeaux. In Bordeaux, we have a different approach of microphilosophy, but much more limited because we have to be in the, in the rule of the appellation. So we will get into the Verte in a moment, but I want to turn my focus a little bit over to Aileen because I kind of want to hear uh, a little bit about how working with you and, and following in your footsteps, Pierre. So Aileen, you're pursuing now a career in winemaking. You started, I think, in 2006, if I've got that right, and served as an assistant winemaker in, in your dad's uh, Bordeaux estate. But you've really kind of come in on your own. What's it like working with your dad? And let's just pretend he's not here. <laughs> no, honestly, look, I've never, I've never been pushed ever to go into this business. First of all, same for my brother. My parents were never pushy about any of this. Um, we saw their, you know, their their passion. And I mean, we moved. I moved from France when I was nine years old to this country for the wine, you know, for a new passion in California. So. I've already been, you know, I've been around this my whole life. When I was little, I was literally born and my mom would take me to the cellars around Bordeaux to see my dad during harvest. And so I've always been around it. And, you know, we were always, my dad always letting me taste wine at a young age with him and smell. And it was always the main conversation around the table. So I think it didn't take me long to realize that's what I wanted to do. Uh, I went back in 2006 to Chateau d'Asseg. Um, they had a joint venture with Jess Jackson and, and Barbara Banky and my parents in 2004 is when they bought the estate. And I had an opportunity in 2006 to go work there, but for the full year. So I was out with the, the viticulture team and doing all the vineyard work throughout the year. It was a difficult vintage too. There was a lot of rain. So it wasn't glamorous. You know, the vineyard work is already physically hard. But on top of it, you put the difficult Bordeaux weather, you know. So, but for some reason, as hard as it was every single day and, and I was new, I wasn't as fast as everybody else and I was learning. Um, I got to see the spirit of the team and, and um, this sort of really strong teamwork to try to finish a parcel to all the way to harvest. And when we picked those grapes and then seeing the transformation and creating the first bottle of wine, it was, you know, incredible. So for me, I never forgot that first year. And there's something about the, the hard work and how gratifying it is to see it come to, to wine. So after that, I never stopped. I went back, I stayed in Bordeaux for a couple of years, 2006 and 2007. And I'm glad I was there during those hard vintages. So I could see, you know, how do we pick? What, what kind of work do we do in the vineyard? You know, we got to drop fruit. We got to do a lot of leaf pulling, things like this. Very careful suckering. And these were all great lessons because I, you know, bring this back here in Sonoma. Yeah. So then in 2008, I came back to California and I did my first harvest at Verite. So I had a couple of years and knew what I was somewhat knew what I was doing in the cellar. And same thing, you know, having to really adapt to the terroir here, to the picking here. If I had brought everything I learned in Bordeaux and used it kind of as a protocol and worked the same way in Sonoma, I don't think we would be making the wines we're making. So that's the biggest lesson I've learned is do not follow a protocol. And really you got to observe and you have to adapt to each, each block, each micro crew, each terroir, and don't worry about 
um, copying a style from Bordeaux, trying to be something, just try to make the best wine you can. It's interesting, you know, you, it, it sounds like you really came by this naturally, as we say in, in the States, like a duck to water. You've took to wine yeah. making. Yeah, you it's still happening, you know. You mentioned Jess Jackson earlier, Jess and Barbara. How did that all happen? What was the journey for them finding you in Bordeaux and what led then on to Verite? Very simple. Nobody was looking for each other, you know. Uh, I was in Bordeaux, but I don't know if you know, but I used to be an intern in California in 1976. I came for seven months from France. We were two viticulturists and winemakers at the time, plus a large group of people working on a different part of the farming in the United States, in different states. But we were two in California, and we were in a place that was uh, funny and very nice when you are 26 years old to be. It was in the south of Los Angeles in Temecula Valley in the Riverside County, which is a beautiful place, but according to the uh, production for the grape with so much heat over there, uh, where the vineyards were more uh, based on the, for the grower to sell the grape for some other winery, and the hot, the hot season is not the perfect place for uh, high quality grapes, but it's exceptional uh, location for avocado and citrus like there. Anyway, according to this, to this time in 1976, I spent eight months over there. When I came back to Bordeaux, starting with the 79 harvest, I, I did continue to work, but uh, during 20 vintage in Bordeaux. Uh, for Cheval Cancar, and I was in charge of seven different chateaux. Now, let me tell you, this 20, 22 years in, in Bordeaux was for me the epicenter of my education in terms of the either quality one, because I do consider Bordeaux like one of the best schools in the world for viticulture, winemaking, education, and as well for the commerce with the with a traditional negotiant, broker, etc., is unique in the world. I consider Bordeaux one of the best schools at the very large scale in also, also for terroir. You need, to, you need to know Bordeaux vineyards represent 300,000 acres of vineyard with 60 appellations, and each appellation you have different classification with a part of the marketing of, the, of this wine all, all the way around the world, and the success since uh, more than two centuries. Can you imagine a classification of the Medoc 1855? One century later, classification Centimillion 1955. It took one century. And these are a lot of message for me. And I never forgot Bordeaux. We are, that's why we are still in Bordeaux with the Jackson family. But today, uh, without Bordeaux, I probably won't be able to create what I did for in California. Well, I have to say, being the beneficiary of some of the spectacular wines that you have made, Pierre, I am very grateful for your experiences in Bordeaux. But again, I'm going to ask, how did you two end up meeting, you, you and, and Jess Jackson? I, I'm, I'm just curious how that occurred. Uh, number one, I, we met Barbara Monkey first, uh, Monique and I, you know, we were... Uh, Barbara, Barbara is Jess's... Wife. Yes, Baba Banke, okay. the wife. Through a friend. It yeah. was really random, through mm -hmm. a common friend. Yeah. Really? And 
it was during, I think, the, if I remember well, it was during Vinexpo 1995. And she, she were in Bordeaux. We were in Bordeaux. I was in Bordeaux representing the wine of the Bordeaux company with our booth. And we met accidentally like this. Uh, by the way, now so a friend, so a common friend from San Francisco. Then we spoke, we, we invite her to have uh, a, a testing, we invite her to, to have a dinner with us in our house in Bordeaux. And the next day we went, I, I took Barbara Banki to make a tour around the different vineyards I was working for. And, and then we had a good time. And she said, uh, Pierre, next year, if you go back to California, I want to introduce my husband who make a little bit of wine. He was Jack Jackson, you know, a little bit of wine. A little bit of wine. And uh, and then we did, and we and then start our our venture together. And give me, I want to give you one details. I told you before how is the best school uh, for me in Bordeaux with in terms of marketing, viticulture, winemaking, appellation, terroir, microcru, etc., etc. But from Jack Jackson, I got something unique. Let me tell you. The second day we met him, uh, it was uh, 96. Second day we met him, he said, I want to show you my different vineyard here in Sonoma by car. And the next day he asked me, Pierre, uh, what do you do tomorrow? I said, I'm on vacation, I'm open. Well, okay, I'd like to take you to go to the south of California, to Cambria, to our estate vineyards in Santa Barbara. And are you okay for that? Of course I am okay. And then, and then the next day on the morning, I met him at the small airport in Santa Rosa. And we were a few people from the company and Jess. And he said, okay, I want you to sit, sit next to me in front of the, of the plane. And he asked the, the pilot uh, a question. Do you know where to go? No, I don't know. Okay, now you, we go north. And in fact, what Jeff did, he, he, he asked the pilot to go all the way north to California, more, uh, uh, further than Mendocino. He want to show me what, from the sky, but not very high elevation, what is the topography of California, what is the influence of the Pacific Ocean, where are the Mayacamas Mountain, where are the different valleys, what is the topography of Mendocino, Sonoma, Lake County, Napa, uh, Monterey, Santa Barbara, etc., etc., and from the right side of the window and the left side of the window, we were going back and forth every five minutes, and he was showing me <laughs> this, this valley like this. He had a map, he had a, and he had a different uh, color uh, pens, you know. And he was, he did provide me in more than one hour in the sky the most exceptional lesson of viticulture, farming, terroir, climate I never received in my life. And I understood quickly his passion. And I understood quickly his type of sensibility for the high quality wine and where he, where he did buy these different type of vineyards, the more coastal. And I understood quickly his vision, his passion, and I was sharing that. And this was the start of our uh, big rencontre. Wow, so you really got a bird's eye view, no pun intended, of all the terroir from Cal in California. 
And then we did the same thing uh, in Tuscany because I went to Tuscany before uh, I went with Jess and Barbara to our estate in Utade Arceno in Tuscany in 1997, starting to see the vineyard, to see the, the complex topography of the Chianti region. And this was the same thing. So what came first, your investment together in Bordeaux or in Sonoma? It was first Sonoma. Sonoma, for sure. Bordeaux, Bordeaux. we arrived in Bordeaux in 2003 when we bought the Chateau Lasseg in October 2003. Very good. So I had the pleasure, and by the way, I should probably back up and explain to our listeners that the Sonoma project is called Verite. And yes. uh, what I love about Verite is it's the idea of, quote, the, the right of the soil. Do I have that right? Yeah, and, and the ability, yeah. yeah, and the the ability of the the grapes and the fruit to really express the terroir of, of Sonoma. Absolutely, yes. The right of the soil belongs to the diversity of the soil, and because you have we have a so much diversity of soil, what I call the microcru, I I need to give the right of the soil to express their own accent, their own uh, uh, type of of uh, um, style of uh, spice and uh, with a different nutrient. This is what I call the right of the soil. So I had the pleasure of trying Verite with actually Pierre, with your wife several years ago. That was my, my introduction and an absolutely wonderful and, and charming woman. And when I asked her, what is, what is the goal of Verite? What is going on with this project? And she said, well, it, what we're trying to do is to embody the timeless traditions of France, but the limitless possibilities of California, which I thought was, to me at the time, revolutionary. I hadn't really thought of it in, in those terms. And Eileen, I want to get your response to sort of that marriage between uh, the traditions of France and, and the yeah. limitless uh, potential of, of California. You know, I think that without the limitless, you know, possibilities of California, we would have never moved. I don't think my dad would have left his great career back in Bordeaux and, and we wouldn't have made the move. I think the Sonoma County, especially at the time, was still very undiscovered. It still is. We're constantly finding new areas, new microcrews, new blocks that you know we're thinking for the future for the next 20, 40 years, planting here and there. Um, so in Bordeaux, it's been around forever. You know, every that you can't blend anything. You know, if you're in Pomerol, you make a Pomerol. If you're in Saint-Emilion, you make a Saint-Emilion. And I think my dad had really done it all for 20 years in Bordeaux, working from the left bank to the right bank to the Entre-deux-Mer. He had seen it all. And for him to go to Sonoma County, and especially with a visionary like Jess Jackson, who really made it possible for him with his amazing portfolio of vineyards and sites. Um, you could, he could have done anything. So I think that's, if that answers the question, Dad, if you want to. No, I think uh, you're absolutely right. Um, you need to be, you know, I'm not a winemaker. I'm a vigneron. But on top of that, I am the servant of the soil. This is my, the education I give to my, to my family and what I try to give to the company. Because the complexity of Sonoma is so... Unlimited. Verite is not a copy of Bordeaux. Why? Because 
Bordeaux, you blend an estate in an estate. Here, I can blend with different appellation. Number two, I don't buy any grape. I'm farming any single microcree with my all our vineyard manager and the team. And we do not have any turnover with these people. And they, know, they do, uh, do understand exactly what the farming have to be. The complexity of the terroir create this first 22 vintage with our philosophy of farming, our philosophy of winemaking, our philosophy of barrel aging, and our philosophy of blending. This is exactly the philosophy of verite. And the philosophy of verite is unique in California. I think it's unique in the world. It's unique in the world at this level of appreciation with our top customer and good critics. It took a long time for me to explain why I choose Sonoma versus Napa when I came. It's because probably my, 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 my training moment I spent in 1976 in a very hot and too hot region teach me quickly, don't go in this direction. And I appreciate the influence of the Pacific Ocean, which every day uh, after 5 p.m., the temperature breeze and the temperature drop. And between 6 p.m. to the next day at 10 a.m., you have a cool, cool temperature, which is fantastic when you're on a hillside, on a rocky soil, volcanic ash, very volcanic red soil, all type of soil we have in Sonoma are uh, uh, fantastic for creating the micro philosophy. And then at the end, if you ferment in a separate tank, you will build by, by aging the wine properly with the right barrel, you will build an, ar an architecture on the blending. You, you slid in there at one point, the critics that have talked about your wine. And I wanna just uh, touch on something I think is pretty remarkable. You're pretty modest, you haven't mentioned it, so I will that several of your wines have received perfect scores over the last 20 years. That is remarkable considering they're Cabernet Franc based. I'm not aware of many, if any, Cabernet Franc based wines in California that have received the scores that you have, uh, Pierre, over the, uh, the, this, the last two decades. You also mentioned that you were focused on the next generation. And Aileen, this is where you come in. Uh, you are taking on more responsibilities, as I understand it, and more involvement in the production of Verite. How does uh, how does your dad continue to mentor you, to mentor you? And and I also understand he's also mentoring your brother Nicholas uh, in Bordeaux at the at the same time. This is a busy guy here, but uh, hopefully your involvement in Verite is uh, going to free him up a little bit. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, we never planned anything in our lives and we don't ever plan. We just live every day. And, you know, I've been, I'm still learning a lot with him. I'm taking more and more responsibilities in the cellar. I'm every chance I get to be with him in the vineyards. It is very complex out here in Sonoma. I can't say I know everything, but this is my next mission. You know, it's the next 10 years with my dad is to really focus on the viticulture side. I've got the the analogy side, which is, I think, a bit easier. That's kind of the easy part. The hardest part is dealing with the mother nature, the weather. Um, you know, I was thinking about it this morning. I mean, you, you take the best, you know, the best terroir doesn't mean that it has the best grapes. You need to create those grapes, you know. And people say you, it's difficult to make a bad wine from, from good grapes. That's true. But how do we get to those good grapes? So that's the, that's the hardest part of the job is really understanding the viticulture 
And with all these different microclimates and micro terroirs and micro crews is being, again, do not, you cannot follow a protocol because if we do the same thing to each, it, it won't work. So it's really about observing and adapting to each vintage. So that's my goal right now is to, to focus more on the viticulture side. And yeah, in the cellar, I mean, it's pretty minimal. I mean, we very traditional winemaking, nothing, nothing in particular. We just really try to, to make the best of the best for each micro crew and they are all very different. And that's what's, you need to take a few steps back and not have your ideal perfect wine in hand um, because otherwise you might miss an energy from one lot that another one, if that makes sense. By, it does, picking, but you yeah. but you have been perfect wines. Yeah, we yeah, but we start off with you know almost fifty different small batches basically, and then we blend them and and we put them in categories and and then we start blending the the final architecture of each cuvee. I want to add something in terms of the when you you said the the best call. Okay, yeah, but for me, I'm going to the, to the point now. For me, the next two generations, uh, the next two, two decades, especially the, the next one for me, have to be the observation of the evolution of this wine in, in, in the bottle. We have a lot of research done in Bordeaux by the whole the Grand Cru Classé when they have the vineyards and for um, two centuries, and they have uh, wine in their cellar, uh, 40 years, 50 years, even 80 years, some hundred years. And we have seen for many, many, many decades the evolution of the wine in Bordeaux. This is what I want to create here, to make an observation of verite for the next two, three decades, as long as I can, with Hélène, with Nicolas, with some other people in California, from Napa, from, from Sonoma. I'm open to work with many people, top people, top vineyards in Napa for observing the observation. And what did change? Because I did test some beautiful Chateau Beaulieu, Latour, from the uh, 40 years uh, ago. And at the time, we didn't have this type of approach of very muscular wine, too heavy in extraction and too much alcohol. We need to go back to elegance, finesse, complexity with a lot of spice for the ageability of the wine. This is the most complicated challenge California is facing now. And same in Bordeaux, because I've seen some great chateau in 2010 with a 15% alcohol. This for me doesn't work. And this is not good for the market and to educate the new generation. Because to make a cult wine in 200 cases, this give a bad image of the, of the consumption of the wine in the world for, because we need to extend the, the market to Asia, Japan, United States with new generation, but we need to have the elegance, finesse, complexity, fruity side. And after each customer, raise his uh, experience by testing, drinking, and put in harmony all the wine with the good food. This is a challenge for Sonoma. I'm not in competition with any wine in Bordeaux, but I want the signature of the terroir with the style of Pierre Seyan and 
the appreciation of the customer is the best answer, not, the, not only the score. I love your vision, and I think you're very fortunate, by the way, Pierre, to have Elaine following in your footsteps and sharing your vision. And I, I, and I completely agree. I love the idea of getting back to more classic winemaking. I only hope that uh, our climate change will accommodate your vision. That's one thing that I am uh, personally very concerned about. While I do think the market did drive uh, more highly extracted wines and higher alcohol levels, and I think that pendulum is finally swinging back more towards elegance and more food-friendly wines, I think our biggest challenge now will be working with the climate change to make sure that we can keep those uh, alcohol levels and, and extractions in check as we, we move forward. And Eileen, I think that you're going to have a an interesting challenge ahead of you in the future. But you know what? All challenges have solutions, and I'm, I'm looking forward to that. So now we, we're, we're coming up. I mean, all this talk about your wines, I'm getting a little thirsty. So we're coming up on my favorite portion of the podcast. What's in your glass? What two wines have you chosen from your portfolio? So I think we were talking about focusing on the 17s, which is our newest release. And I'm, I really love that vintage. It was a difficult one because, you know, we, we had the fires, um, the Tubbs fires. But luckily, we picked everything before and everything was in the already barreled down, actually. We started picking September 2nd and finish at the end of September and the fires started first week last or first week of October. So luckily for us, we were, were very, very happy to have everything inside. Um, and it's a really great vintage besides the, the fires. Um, so we could, I think, focus on La Muse, which is our Merlot base. And it has been a Merlot base for the, the 17th, what, the 20th vintage. It's been a Merlot base for 19 vintages. And for the first time in 17, it's 100% Merlot. So that's never been done before, but we ended up doing that. It was a decision we made together when we were blending. The Merlots were so exceptional and We've had some new blocks and lots that we incorporated in the blend that really brought so much spice and so much core to the wine that it really didn't need anything else. And then we could focus um, either on La Joie or Le Désir. I mean, honestly, we've opened all three, so it's you, you pick. <laughs> well, where would you like to start? Um, La Muse, oh, let me go get a glass. Yeah, so of course it's a really young vintage. I just got bottled a year ago. I appreciate the wines of Verite because we can taste them, drink them young, but they can also age forever. So we're, we've been saying that forever, but we have, we know it now with the 98 vintage, our inaugural vintage, um, especially such a difficult vintage like 98, we're, we had it two days ago. Um, it's incredible. They age really, really well. So you have the 2017 vintage. Yeah, the 17. And the ageability, I mean, it looks beautiful. I mean, again, we're doing this by Zoom. I can see what you're you're doing. Unfortunately, we don't have a smellorama yet on on the podcast. But you you look very intense and in, in smelling this wine. What's what's going um, on? Glass. I know. I people tell me that all the time. It's when I concentrate, I tend to look mad. <laughs> you, look, I, you do look a little I, angry, but I'm curious. I get, you know, sometimes when we taste, we have to we have to go in another form. You know, we. I, I turned something on in my brain where I have to connect with my spirit to really smell deep. <laughs> but yes, for the first time, it's a hundred percent Malo. So we're very proud um, to 
to have accomplished that. It's not a goal every year, but it just made sense that year. People ask us why we did it. It was very, it wasn't planned till seriously the, the day we blended. We had some great components of Cabernet Franc and great components of Malbec, which we've always put in the blends. We really like the, the spices that the Malbec brings, but for some reason that year, we, we tried it without and, and it turned out even better. So we did different trials and, you know, it takes us probably a year and a half to, you know, finalize the blends. So we don't do it quickly. We, we age all the lots separately in, in, in barrels. And sometimes we don't do the final blends right before bottling sometimes. Yeah, the vintage, uh, it was a great growing season. You know, everything was really good. We had some good winter rains and some good water in the soils, which is great in California as we have less and less water. Um, we got a bit of a heat wave towards the end of the ripening, which was fine. It helped finish the ripening. Um, but at Verite, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, every vintage is the same. We tend to be the first ones to pick in the whole Appalachian. We sometimes pick at the same times as some people pick the whites. So we really like to, you know, September 2nd is when we started. Um, and each micro crew, again, it's so, there's so many different areas where we pick from that some mountains that come in, the first mountains that come in around the Chalk Hill area, um, on September 2nd, our last mountains were third week of September from Bennett Valley, which is a much cooler region. So we have this diversity of, of soils and terroirs and elevations and expositions. So it's really in Bordeaux, it's always Merlot first, Cab Franc second, and we finish with the Cab Sauv. Here it's the opposite. Depending on, on the terroir and where it's coming from, you know, the first that we pick are Merlot and we finish with Merlot. And in between, we have the Cabernet Franc, the Cabernet Sauvignon, the Petit Verdot, and the Malbec. Well, you know, I'm, I'm no vineyard manager and certainly no winemaker. But it sounds like you're picking pretty early. Is there a reason? Is there something you're looking for when you pick that early? I mean, you know, traditionally, I hear of uh, vineyard managers, winemakers picking third, fourth week in September and in early October. Right. So early, everything is relative, you know, early, maybe early for here, but it wouldn't be early in Bordeaux in some places. Um, we were, we go out and we, we really just need balance in the fruit. We don't want to reach us, you know, too high alcohol levels. And we definitely don't want to lose the natural acidity in the grapes because we don't add any tartaric acid, things like this in the, in the cellar. We really just work with the natural grape. And of course, uh, by not having the very big ripe tannins, we have to be very gentle and careful in the cellar. And that's my job, you know, is to make sure we never over extract and we, we do lot by lot, you know, and we don't have a protocol. So every day we taste each tank during fermentation and decide on time. And sometimes I say 30 minutes and my dad will come right behind, say, no, no, 15. And, and it's fine. We don't care, you know, and um, we're a really good team, my dad and I, because we don't have any egos we have so much respect and love and it's so much fun to work together that it just works. And I, I really actually, people always ask him like, are you ever going to retire? He says, no. And that's actually, I'm so glad I don't want him to, this isn't just a job. It's our life. You know, we, 
we I've I grew up in this and to be able to work with my dad and it, it's better than what I would have ever thought. Had you asked me when I was 15 years old, if I was going to work with my dad, I would have told you never, but now, no, of course, we're pretty much best friends. I have to say, I've done a lot of interviews and that is probably one of the most touching things I have ever heard. I am blown away and the respect and love that you have for each other. Yeah. It, it comes through in the wines as well which makes it even more special. I'm just going to add one thing about, since we're getting all love, um, <laughs> my, my other half is, well, my brother, my big brother who's in Saint-Emilion, and him and I are very, very close. And I think the reason why we're able to make great wines all over the world, and we help my dad, my dad oversees it all, but he's able to go back and forth, is again, that respect that we have in our family. You spoke about my mom earlier. I don't think you've met my brother yet, but I think you should meet him someday. Um, but we have this extreme respect and trust in our family. And again, no egos. And it's all about helping each other. So my brother can come out to Verite at any point and he understands the philosophy. He could take over and I could go to Lasseg. And sometimes we do that. We'll swap throughout the year because I need to go back to Bordeaux every once in a while and see what's going on. And so we talk on the phone almost every single day. Every time I make blends, there's one person I send them to. If it's not, it's my dad and I, I send to my brother so that he keeps them in case I lose them. <laughs> and, uh, and so we're really, really close. That's really, I think our part of our success is our family and our extended family, which are our teams. So production, viticulture, inside the cellars, the guys and the women that are working are, have been there since the beginning, most of them, you know, and they're happy to come to work. And we we're almost like all family. And I think that's the success. And that's the secret to making great wines and wines that don't change too. wines that keep a style. And, and you need teams because if you had too many turnovers in the production side, we couldn't do it all by ourselves. We would have to teach new people all the time, but now it's such a pleasure to go out in the field in, in the vineyards and watch my dad, you know, with his smile up to his ears, just so content and happy at the vineyard managers that he's been training for 20 years. Um, and they know their job, you know, it's making his life easier. Now they know, they know what he wants. Eileen, forget uh, bottling the wine. You should bottle that formula. No, thank you. It's a wonderful story. So let's get back to the, uh, the wine, the 2017, is this the Lemuse? Yes. It's in your glass. Tell me about it. Yeah. So first you're looking at the color. It's very young. It's 17. So it's kind of a deep, deep purple in color, I guess, garnet hues. And I get a lot of it's these wines. You can start smelling, tasting them now. You wait an hour. Everything you wrote down on your piece of paper, you're going to want to write something completely different. So I'm not a big fan of, you know, tasting notes or or describing it's more about how the wine makes me feel in the moment so of course you know you've got all the things you've got the the dark fruit the, the chocolate the there's some floral notes there's some forest floor it's very very complex and that's the point something we often say uh, my dad and i is we don't want to be able to describe our wines because then it means that they're not complex enough there's so many layers there are so many layers and it's really about the, the balance at the end and how the wine makes you feel. After you drink a glass, do you want a second glass? There's times where I taste a great wine. 
I think it's a great wine. I have one glass and then I just don't want a second glass because maybe it's too high in alcohol or it's just not making me feel good or a great bottle of wine is an empty bottle of wine. It's really interesting. My son, who's in his late 20s, describes wine in terms of how it makes him feel. Now, he can dissect a wine. He can mm -hmm. get into the descriptors, which is traditionally what I do because I'm an old fart. But he is really concentrates more on describing how the wine makes him feel. And I, I find that fascinating. How does this wine make you feel? This wine makes me happy. <laughs> it just makes me, no, it makes me. And of course, when we're, when we're blending, that's the more serious tasting. Of course, we dissect each lot and we talk about their strength, the weaknesses of each and how sometimes two weaknesses blended together can create a strength. It's the synergies between the different lots, which is the whole art of blending. So that's why you should never judge. And I say the same thing in a team. You don't have your number one guy in your team. Everybody, everybody in the team needs to have strengths and weaknesses and together they are greater than all parts. And it's the same thing um, in blending. There are some lots that individually, yeah, okay, they're, they're lacking this, but they're actually gonna bring what another superstar lot might not have and together. And so imagine when you start blending at 50 plus lots, you get, that's when my dad talks about building an architecture. It's really, that's what it is. First you work on, on the foundation and then you work on like a cathedral, the, the, the roof, the, the small windows, the details. Well, it seems to me, Alien, that you and your father are the perfect blend. <laughs> That's how we feel. <laughs> Some days. <laughs> so, Eileen, what's in your next glass? So, the next wine is uh, La Joie 2017. So, this is a Cabernet Sauvignon blend, um, base blend. Um, so, this one, you know, the blends change every year. This year, it's 70% Cabernet Sauvignon, 16% of Cabernet Franc, 10% Merlot, and 4% Petit Verdot for the spice. Again, the, Cab the Cabernet Sauvignon in this comes from Alexander Mountain. So from different elevations, um, we pick also from Knights Valley, which is on the foothill of Mount St. Helena on the Sonoma side. Uh, we have got um, some really great caps. So in this one, you can smell the intensity. I mean, the Cab Sauv has nothing to hide. We always say he's the macho of each of the three. And it's really nice. The I can tell by the smile on your face. You're really happy with uh, the aromas in that wine. Uh, the, the Cabernet Sauvignon, like she said, uh, Cabernet Sauvignon is um, the most macho grape between the Merlot and between the Cap Franc. But the uh, Merlot is more shy and the Cap Franc is more spicy, but the Cabernet Sauvignon is showing everything immediately. But in this wine, I smell so much. There's so much going on, you know. There's, you know, the black currant all these different dark fruits and red fruits, you can still smell. It's not, it's not a big, uh, because it was a hot year, 17, hot. We remember it, but you don't smell anything overcooked, you know? Well, that's the art of great winemaking. Black truffle in there too right now. Yes. I get some black truffle smells, which I didn't get a few months ago. And you had mentioned that this wine means the joy and was named by Jess Jackson. Yes. 
And I think it was very, you know, the beginning at Verite, there wasn't much marketing or anything. It was really just my dad and everything happened very quickly. My dad presented him his first vintage of La Joie, which was in 1998. And I, from the story, uh, just smelled the wine, smiled and looked at my dad, told him, this is La Joie. This is joy. Pierre, you're, you're a brilliant winemaker. Eileen, I think that together you are going to be the most formidable team uh, in, in California. And I am so, so glad that you both took the time to join me today on this podcast. It has just been such a delight and a pleasure to interview both of you. And it was a great pleasure for us. Honestly, these are great moments that we'll remember forever because there's times we're not together and we don't take the time to say nice things like this. (laughs) We're not always behind a computer and it's such great talking with you. Meet you. I will be very pleased to meet you now. Well, I, I look forward to meeting this is Oliver. I look forward to meeting both of you in person. And again, I love what you're putting in the bottle, but I really love the love that you have for each other. And that's what I want to see you bottle. Special okay. formula. So again, thank you so much for, for being on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. That'll do it for this episode of The Vine Guy, a WTOP news podcast. This episode was produced by Sarah Beth Hensley, and the music you heard is Wishful Thinking by Dan Leibowitz, available in the YouTube audio library. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter and catch my Wine of the Week shows every Friday on WTOP and WTOP.com. And remember, just like the Sanians, do good, drink well. To be your best every day, You need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples... Temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.